0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: Hey, uh, before we get going, I just want to tell you a little bit about a new podcast called Screen Dive from 20th Century Fox. Yes, it's the first podcast developed and produced by a major Hollywood studio. They go deep inside beloved films with new interviews, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. They're doing The Sandlot, Planet of the Apes, Deadpool, and The Devil Wears Prada. So all you need to do is go into the podcast app you're probably in now or Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or YouTube, or wherever you listen, and search for Screen Dive on October 30th. Again, Screen Dive, new podcast coming out October 30th. There's just one more podcast I'd like to tell you about before we start the show. Uh, This is Aaron Lammer. I'm your co-host on this show. and I actually have another podcast called Stoner, in which I talk to creative people about their relationship with marijuana. Some of them are in legalization states some of them aren't some of them smoke weed all the time some of them have had terrible experiences some of them are smoking weed for the first time in their 40s we've had on people like gia tolentino who's been on this show we have on politicians like uh, congressman blumenauer who's the head of the cannabis caucus we have all kinds of interesting people coming on in this the second season so i want you to go right now to the podcast app you're in search for stoner subscribe then come back and listen to this week's long form, which is starting right now. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff in our studio. Here we are. Hello, Aaron. We are. Hey. Uh, this week on the show, this is a really fun one. Evan, You re- I know you read this book. I don't know if Max read this I book. love this book. Uh, so, I don't know, a bit ago. It's on, coming on paperback now, so it's been a while since the book came out. But uh, a book called uh, Sticky Fingers came out, and it is a uh, history of the founder of Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner, and with it, the magazine... Um, these kind of books come along for me, maybe one or two, a decade, just like sprawling, like includes everyone for 30 years, kinds of big, big biographical stories. So this one is great. I highly recommend it. And, uh, of all of the topics that I talk about in the show, figuring out how he was able to assemble the anecdotes in this book is, it's a pretty wild story. Yeah. How did he get it all? A lot of work. <laughs> the answer, an incredible amount well, of work. <laughs> I'll also sum it up in that I think many people who are famous, if you go and say, hey, I want to write about this person, people are like, oh, I need to check with them. I don't know. And it seems like everyone who was asked about um, talking about Jan Wenner was like, okay, I'm going to need to block out the days. How long are you in town? <laughs> like, people had a lot to say. So uh highly recommend this one. Yeah, Joe
0: Hagen's great. He's also written a lot of great magazine stories. Absolutely, yeah,
1: and, and he's writing about... world that he was from inside of this was originally a official commissioned biography and then along the way it became something much different so it's uh it's got about as much backstory as a book can have I feel like people had uh, a lot to say about Jan Wenner Aaron say that uh imagine a situation in which you had a lot to say yes how would you go about doing so email newsletter (laughs) I'm gonna say this The email newsletter is the only reliable form of media that you could get involved with right now and assume you could do it for the next decade. Like, if you start a MailChimp newsletter, you you can probably keep sending it out until you die. and There will probably be people reading the email. So I think if you're investing in one way to get your ideas out, there's no better one than an email newsletter from MailChimp. I really appreciate the... uh Insinuation there That we're all going to die In the next decade Yeah (laughs) You you just You don't want to outlive Your newsletter Is what I'm saying (laughs) Well the show would die Without (laughs) MailChimp So thanks to them Here's Aaron With Joe Hagan Welcome Joe Hagan Thank you Uh, You're coming in from Tivoli Tivoli, New York which is where this book has, you have uh, Sticky Fingers. Yeah. It's a book about uh, Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone out in paperback now. Get that out of the way yeah. early. The book is this long 40, 50-year arc, and then it goes yeah. back to the beginning of you
0: meeting Jan Wenner
1: yeah. in a coffee shop in Tivoli. or In near Tivoli, Tivoli, New
0: York. Tivoli, New York. So, yeah, uh, just the short story is I had moved up there the summer before. As many a writer in New York City does. You know, got to decamp to the country <laughs> and uh, and go crazy. Yeah. So uh, then I uh, was in a coffee shop uh, in the village there called Murray's, which is like the local student hangout. And uh, in walked Yon Winter, getting like a gallon of milk and a cappuccino because they had a little grocery part to it. And uh, he, I introduced myself because I knew who he was. And, you had
1: uh, interned at Rolling Stone? I had interned
0: time? there. I would once sort of had a audience with him when I was a reporter at the wall street journal covering the media and uh, you know, just knew him. I mean, he's like a, a figure. Yeah. Right. And um, so I said, Hey, Jan Winter, what are you doing here? And then got into a conversation with him and one thing led to another. And I was invited to his estate, which it turns out he had just moved into. It's one of his many, but he had a, a joint up there and, uh, and it was a pretty fabulous joint, you know, as you can imagine. So, maybe a year and a half into knowing him a little bit, just casually having a couple of like social get togethers because he didn't know anyone around there. So I just sort of de facto became the guy he called when he showed up in the countryside and uh, we would have lunch, talk about journalism, politics. He assigned me a couple of pieces for like men's journal and he kind of liked what I was doing and then it popped into his head one day that he was gonna have me write his biography.
1: So at this point you were primarily a political reporter
0: It was a mix. Yeah, I was doing political reporting and on the side I would do music reporting and I'd dump a couple of significant music pieces. You know, big music head. Yeah. So and uh, yeah, but politics and a little culture on the side. What was your initial path into writing? What were the first few jobs you had professionally? You know, there used to be a magazine in the late 90s called Brooklyn Bridge Magazine. I'm gonna admit I've never heard of that. It was uh, short-lived. It had a kind of an eccentric owner, and she was, uh, and through a friend, I got a job there writing, you know, write about the guys who raise pigeons on the roof. Uh, Go out and hang out with the Haitian radio jockeys. This is
1: a print publication.
0: It was a a full-color glossy magazine, kind of ahead of its time because it was before Brooklyn was "quote unquote" Brooklyn, and so, uh, and I got to go out and do all these little pieces for them, and I parlayed that into a job at Esquire as a fact checker. And then I parlayed that into getting my a job at smartmoney.com covering mutual funds. Ooh. Yeah, very exciting. But that gave me all this repertorial experience. And my first big magazine piece was I pitched to a now dead magazine called Civilization. You know.
1: You've know, you kind of got the murdering touch.
0: I The murdering touch. And uh, I got sent uh, on a trip to hang out with this um, global investor named Dr. Mobius. Who was like, you know, Mr. Clean with shiny bald head and a Nero style kind of safari shirt and lived in a private jet and flew around investing in emerging markets. And I spent like a week flying around with him, wrote a giant magazine article, and that became my calling card to get stories in the New York Times and eventually work at the New York Observer and New York Magazine. Writing about mutual funds. Yes. And later um,
1: emerging market profiteers. Yes. Um, like, Off the bat, when you're being asked to write about something like a mutual fund, are you expected to make that interesting for a reader to get into the personalities of the people behind these funds?
0: Well, when I was first doing it, uh, a friend of mine got me the job because I was unemployed at the time. And he said, you know, it's easy. You know, you just have these sort of stock questions. You ask them what stocks they're investing in and you just cobble it together and it's no problem. Yeah. And it was the dot com boom. So there were jobs. They were yep. throwing warm bodies. Everyone was a genius. Exactly. I knew nothing. Really, yeah. literally could not even have told you what a stock was at the time. I was yep. such a buffoon about it all. But I you know, learned it very quickly. And I also ultimately realized I'm not going to like doing this unless I find a creative way to do it. So I would come up with these sort of like harebrained. I was considered like the guy with the crazy ideas. You know, I remember uh, during the presidential election in 2000, they were putting out all of the investments that the different candidates had, and I created an interactive thing on the SmartMoney.com website that you could track by the minute whose stock portfolio was was supreme. And um, I can't remember there was a Republican guy who was sort of like a fourth-tier guy who had all of his money in Qualcomm, which at the time was this outrageous stock. And he anyway, I would do things like that. And yep. in this instance, I got fascinated with this weird eccentric guy who lived in a jet and went around doing emerging markets. And I thought, well, that's more interesting than the rest of this stuff. So I'll pursue that. So it was really just um, turning something that was dull into something I could get into.
1: Yeah. And I would say that your approach to political reporting has some overlaps with that. I, yeah. You're not a um, like the piece I most remember from your tenure at New York magazine was a piece about a uh, conservative cruise. Yeah, that probably closer to like David Foster Wallace's piece on cruises than it is to a hard-hitting political report it's more or less a a series of first-person observations of people on a cruise who aren't really that different than people on any cruise right like there's more probably complaining about the food than there is political discussion right exactly Um, yeah is that a style that came naturally to you? Like once you started doing stuff like politics where you, you see a greater variety of approaches, how did you develop your own?
0: Well, it, you know, a lot of it had to do with finding out what tickled me. You know yeah. what I mean? And I never was good at fitting into a um, frame that an editor wanted. You know, I worked at the Wall Street Journal for a year and I hated it because it was so boxy and you couldn't kind of be yourself. And I did sort of to some degree worship at the altar of certain new journalistic people, which, you know, new journalism was no longer in vogue by the time I'm coming around. But to the degree that I could play in that territory, I would get excited about that. You know, Um, the book that got me really into journalism that sparked me and made me kind of ultimately decide that's what I have to do with my life. Is Bill Buford's book Among the Thugs, where he spends like two years with all these like soccer fans in Europe. And it was a gonzo type of book, you know, but it was really well done and had a sociological observation to it. And so to the degree I could try to do that, uh, I wanted to. What, What details did you take from that book? Well, the thing that captured me about that book specifically was at first he was observing as a reporter from afar kind of street combat between the fans of different soccer teams. You know, he'd go to Italy and he'd see these fights break out. They were violent melees and stuff. But then about halfway through or three quarters through, when he goes to the soccer finals, the cup in France, he himself gets so swept up in the fervor of the street fan kind of violence that he himself finds himself like beating people up and getting punched in the fight. And then he has, from that, he extrapolates into a kind of like essayistic sociological thing about like what that was, you know, how there is this sort of social effect of being around lots of people doing something and then you yourself almost automatically falling into it. And I'm really into the sociological thing. I mean, making some sociological observation, uh, on top of just what you're reporting. I'm glad you brought up that cruise ship piece because, you know, my, um, Family uh, on my father's side are all conservatives. Mm. And so I had a kind of a, a, an empathy there or an affinity or an understanding at least for those kinds of people. And the challenge of that piece was to both kind of be irreverent, but also to, you know, don't shoot fish in a barrel, which it would be so easy to do, but to try to understand them. You know, yeah. You, know, you can have fun with it, but also show that they're struggling and that they have their own issues. And at the end, it really... Of that piece i was like you know sitting in a hot tub with this lady she's talking about how her son became a drug addict or something and she blamed the 60s and the loss of the moral fiber and then she begins weeping and the next thing you know i've got my arm around her and i was like that's kind of what i came here for and that's what i wanted the story to be
1: and for that moment to happen and for many of the moments in that story to happen you have to be fairly open about who you are. You yeah. can't say I'm politically neutral, like yeah, yeah, yeah. don't you know, don't notice me over here. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. in the story you're a a l- ostensibly liberal yeah. reporter on a conservative cruise ship. That's, That's square right. one.
0: And that was actually an arc that I went through. It wasn't not a thing that I automatically a lot oftentimes the best stories that I would write are ones where I do come out with a new Feeling or a thought at the end. You know, I've gone myself through a journey and the story ends up representing that journey somehow. And in that particular cruise ship story, I snuck aboard not saying what my credentials were at all. And for the first three days, nobody knew who I was or why I was there. They just figured I was one of them. And the pressure of it was very intense because for the first three nights, I'm at dinner parties. You know, every night you'd be put with a different group in a dinner table scenario. And i would just sort of sit there and smile and kind of go along without really revealing too much about myself but the funny thing about that experience was i got on the phone with my editor i was like in jamaica or something and <laughs> i was like this is getting really intense and he's like you know you just need to tell them who you are let the cat out of the bag let some of the pressure off of this and then just do the rest of your job and so i did i went to the publisher of the national review i told him I'm from New York Magazine. I'm on this boat writing a story. Just thought I'd let you know. Of course, he blanched. You know what I mean. And then he sent <laughs> out, he sent out an email across the cruise ship, warning to, warning. But the funny thing was, people wanted to hang out with me after that. Yeah, they were like, "Please come to our table." They thought that's now we're getting exciting. This cruise is getting exciting. You know? Yeah. And so I found myself invited to like the Cayman Islands with some of the heads of the National Review, like at this big table, which I wouldn't have otherwise. And it turned into part of the story. That idea of
1: pursuing empathy yeah, uh, with people different yourselves, I definitely think that was a dominant model for journalism. It goes back some to the new journalism, which yeah. um, even Tom Wolfe is kind of an uptake guy hanging out with some crazy hippies and yes. becoming a bit of a crazy hippie. Right. So that trajectory is there. More recently, there's been a counter-narrative of Don't normalize extremism. Yes. Don't humanize those whose views you find abhorrent. And I'm wondering you know, you just wrote what is in some ways a history of journalistic trends uh, starting in about 1969 till the present. What do you think about that transformation? I think it's toxic.
0: You know, that's like against everything I stand for, basically, you know? When I was younger, I was doing it for irreverent purposes. One of the first pieces I ever published, well, the one about the mutual fund guy, he was this sort of like piratical, you know, investing guy. And uh, I just thought it would be really interesting. But the next piece I did was about a guy who was an Al Jolson impersonator who did blackface in Florida and uh it was wow.
1: i would say that like um yeah. if i were to like yeah illustrate the term problematic which yes. is the center here like we, yes. we could just paste that
0: right. as the the art next to it yeah uh,
1: like professional al Jolson impersonator yes
0: right he was like a he was this british guy there's a whole story to it you can look it up on the it, yeah it was published. it's a great story
1: i re- totally recommend people check it out oh you, you, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh,
0: it's on your website oh yeah that's right well so that was like a huge challenge for me like can i wrap my head around this guy yeah and then, like Find out why he's doing this and what is the bottom of it. And at the bottom of it was that he was felt totally disconnected from the world and had this apocalyptic worldview and wrote all this weird poetry and was an eccentric, basically. Yeah. Um, but you know, now as I got into politics, the reason politics attracted me was it was right around the time of the people coined the phrase "red and blue states." Okay, it was after Al Gore and George W. Bush election in two thousand. You know, you began to see, hey, these two sides don't understand each other, and they were breaking down into their own TV channels. They were breaking down into their own websites, their own newspapers, and, and I became fascinated with that history of how that happened, and also realized that at one time this is just the way it was everywhere. You know, it turned out that the middle part of uh, the American century, the twentieth century, in which there were three TV networks and a handful of newspapers, you know, that was a anomaly. Yeah. Right. So now we're back to, kind of what it was like in the 19th century, yeah. and it's breaking down. And there is this, the tools of the journalism that I learned about trying to, kind of uh, have a, an emotional denouement somehow with your subject. You know, where you come to a moment of understanding, is becoming more rare. It's less in vogue, certainly. You know, and that's in addition to the vogue for shorter everything. You know right. shorter content and shorter attention spans and uh you know it, it's even happened to me i probably read less you know new yorker magazine than i should but and in some ways that just a segue for a minute at the beginning you said you've written this really long book and it is people know that 500 pages but i remember writing this book and i wanted this book to be a testament to the kinds of journalism that rolling stone used to publish and does still occasionally and to the whole journalistic history there, not by writing about journalism per se at every minute in the Because a lot of the books about all these cultural figures and rock stars yep. and all that kind of history. But I wanted the book to be its form, to be also matching the content. And that meant writing long and making it dense and gnarly and epic, yep. you know, because the epic has been sort of, it doesn't maybe fit the times right now, but uh, I wanted it to be that way because that was my commitment to the subject.
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Scoggin'. There is a story behind Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry and when you take a closer look it's easy to see what they stand for being part of a community making time for relationships and living in the moment the minimalist design of Skagen watches reflect the less is more lifestyle of The Danish people. Uh, They offer men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smartwatches. They sent us one of these smartwatches. I've seen it on my co-host Max Linsky's uh, wrist. It does not look like a smartwatch. It looks like a beautiful watch, and then it just comes to life seamlessly. It is the first uh, smartwatch I would consider uh, wearing, and it's the kind of watch that will look good now or 10 years from now because simplicity isn't just beautiful. It's versatile. So go to... Skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. You will get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Again, Scoggin.com. Thank you to Scoggin. Here I am back with Joe Hagen. So let's talk about the book. Yeah. Going into this, yeah. um, I'll admit, I'm never clear what it means when a biography is authorized or unauthorized or it's Jan Wenner as told to Joe Hagen versus there's this whole spectrum of approaches to both biography and autobiography. So going into this book, did you have models of like, this is how I see this book
0: going? Sure. Well, it was all very worked out at the very beginning with him. Yeah. We had a big debate that went on for a month. What is this book?
1: So he asked you to do
0: it. He asked me to do it. We were having lunch one day in Rhinebeck, New York, and uh, ostensibly a meeting that he wanted to give me a contract at Rolling Stone and have me leave New York Magazine, Yeah, which I didn't want to do. Why did you not want to do that? Well, you know, you were talking about the National Review Cruise thing and about the empathy, you know. I always felt that Rolling Stone really lacked that, that they were so kind of... um, built into this Democratic Party worldview that I couldn't do the kind of journalism I wanted to do there. I felt like they were too... And I'd written a piece for them, actually, a profile of Joe Arpaio, the sheriff in Arizona. And I remember the editorial, them getting in there and adding their little... Yeah. Kind of barbs into it that would make yeah. it more like their piece rather than the yeah. kind I
1: wanted to do. It's got like a little bit of a sensibility of an editorial cartoon. Like yes. Just even the way that sometimes things are visually positioned. And they could did that too. To, to yeah. believe um, yeah. that this is. Maybe a piece less like your New York piece and more, say, like Matt Taibbi's coverage, which I actually think you're very generous to in this book and saying this was actually the resurgence of Rolling Stone's political coverage. But that that style and the uh, National Review Cruise piece couldn't be more different than each other in approach.
0: Well, and just to your point, uh, just as a little bit of a digression, but he wrote that famous piece on Goldman Sachs. Yep. And I wrote a Goldman Sachs piece right at the same time mm. that was much cooler in tone. Yeah. And actually had much more different kind of reporting, let's put it that way. You know, it was more in the belly of the beast. Like I actually got them to invite me into Goldman Sachs and gave me a tour of it. Yeah. In addition to all these interviews I did with people, current and former employees. And his piece got a lot of attention, of course, and as it should have been it could. It was hilarious. You know, it was funny and it yep. was it fit the times. It perfectly captured the rage that we have been kind of living in ever since, frankly. I mean, yeah. so I get it. But like, so anyway, Rolling Stone wasn't for me. Was yeah. The bottom line. And um, not to keep go- digressing with sure, digression, okay.
1: but <laughs> I think that there's another trend which is against the idea of access, uh, particularly in the political sphere right now, but I think also in terms of Wall Street and stuff that says. Hey, don't try to like get inside these places. Right. All you're gonna find is bullshit and lies. Yes, if you really want to understand them, never talk to them. Right, like in going after Goldman Sachs. Like, what do you find inside a Goldman Sachs that's interesting to you that someone couldn't see without that? Well,
0: kind of I just wanted to see. Uh, you know, in some ways, it allows you to demystify. Because, yeah. you know, if you just read Might Taibbi, you think that it's like a torture dungeon in there. And, like, right. you know, um, Malaysian children are being whipped by a, you know, ogre of some kind and money comes out the other side. You know, I mean? I mean, I wanted to just see it's a bunch of like guys from, you know, Westchester in their Brooks Brothers shirts or whatever. It's the banality of it. Yeah. You know? Because that's what was so horrifying about the crash is it's like the banality of a bunch of like, you know, weekend warrior frat boys who went to business school who were just figuring out another way to mint a dollar you right. know? and to me that was interesting and, and well the other thing is like if you have that kind of access and you're starting to work with the company when you go to other people who say were former employees of Goldman Sachs or people who had just left or even people who were still there and you say I'm actually working with the company so you can talk to me
1: yeah. many
0: of them would and they would not speak on the record but because they felt like you were yeah kind of do, being fair yeah they were going to talk out of school and so that's just a different method of like getting access but but that's the school i come from in some ways a very kind of orthodox concept of journalism just you know call everybody imaginable you right. know. Find out everything. Why wouldn't you go in? Tell hey, them what yeah. fact. Call everyone. Yeah. Compile all the facts. Yeah, I'll go in. The I'll go into ones. the office. Sure. Yeah. Let me yeah. look. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. and just see what I've never. And you know, the thing I got out of it, if nothing else, it's a detail in the Goldman Sachs piece. I was walking by an office, and I just saw a group of men around a desk, and there was their leader was standing, and he just had a cricket bat, and he was whacking his hand <laughs> with it, just whacking, whacking, and I yeah. thought that was worth the price of admission right there. Just right. some guy in a pink Oxford with a cricket bat in his hand. Yeah. doing God knows what, you know. And so It was uh, a trading floor, by the way.
1: <laughs> a list of people to call and the implicit instruction talk
0: to this guy is is more or less what Jan Wenner promised you in terms of this book. That's right. So to take you back to Reinbeck for a moment. Yes. when I when he saw my interest dimming in coming to Rolling Stone for he, people listening, Randbeck and Tivoli are near each other. Yeah, yeah, if you, it's like you a don't little
1: live on the uh, outskirts of northern New York. City. <laughs> yes, right.
0: It's like this is a little like um, kind of weekend town for yeah. Manhattanites. And uh, so he says, uh, well, "Why don't you write my biography?" And in some ways, that was a very really perfect John Winter moment because yep. he's seeing that you don't like want to come to his magazine. Inside, yeah. he's a little bit disappointed, and yeah. he's going to figure out a way to get you.
1: You Did know, you explain to him why you didn't want to come to his
0: magazine in, in the same terms that you just explained to I him? I didn't. Me? No. Oh, At okay. the time, it kind of happened quickly. He just yeah. saw me hemming and hawing. I wasn't saying no outright. I was sort of yeah. saying, yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, kind of busy. Yeah, yeah, maybe I could do half and half. Yeah. I don't, you know. So he offers, why don't you write my biography? And I had to think about it. And then it began a process of me processing that the reality of what that would mean. Yeah. And what if. It was going to happen. What kind of book would I want to write? Yeah. Now you have to understand, this is my first book. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm not going to let my first book be some kind of like half-ass, as-told-to, authorized crap. Yeah. You know? it's just not who I am. I I just but as I told him at the time, I was yeah. I spent you know, 15 years building my career here. I'm not going to stop doing what I do for three or four years writing your book. I, if I'm going to do it, it has to be a real thing. And so he, had, he would pay lip service to that, yeah, 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 but, and then began a string of caveats and in terms of what he didn't want me to touch or or write about, or um, why don't you just do it as an authorized thing? You, you'll be able to do more or less what you want to do. And yeah. I was like, and eventually I wrote a letter to him and just said, I can't do this because he was just showing too much um, need to control. And I realized that's the kiss of death, you know? And then uh, he eventually said, well, why don't you write down what you need in a document and like a legal document, and we'll go back and forth until we get some where we want to be. So to your question about authorized, unauthorized, the book is basically an unauthorized book because he didn't read the manuscript or have any control over it. And that was the main thing I needed. And because it has to be me, it has to be my thing. I have to be able to, at the end of the day, shut a door, write what I think, and then have it come out. Of the printing press. Have you ever in a reverie thought
1: if I just handed Jan Wenner this manuscript <laughs> and a
0: um, blackout marker what would this look like? Yeah. Published He would have flipped out if I had given it to him in any yeah. form. I mean yeah. he just let me just be frank with you he's somebody who has the kind of ego and is living in the kind of world that he lives in one of wealth and a kind of bubble and he's got an autocratic personality anyway he's not in touch with the reality that is in this book yeah and he can't stand what is in this book because it's too real you know and um i get that but i knew it from the beginning
1: and so the uh conflict wouldn't have been i want these 78 details removed it would have been i want this book removed
0: i want this book dead
1: yeah. And was that something that you picked up on early when yes. you told him you couldn't do it? That well, it was... the
0: fact that we were writing a, a legal yep. document to prescribe what was, how it was going to work yeah. told me a lot. And his big sort of uh, insurance policy, at least as he saw it, was to insist that it be fact-checked, which I was going to do anyway, but I agreed yeah. to it in writing. He thought that would just mean we'd end up showing him the whole thing. And that's not what it meant at all. And that's kind
1: of a big mistake to make as a like lifelong magazine editor to yes. assume that fact-checking is going to like show you quotes. Right. Because it's pretty fundamentally the opposite of
0: that. Well, he tried to get that in the contract, that mm-hmm. I, you review all quotes with me, and I said no. And, uh, yeah, so that tipped me off really early on, what I was dealing with. And I kind of knew it already just hanging around him, like yeah. how mm, kind of rich his ego is was, right. you know, and how his worldview was very, you know, the kind of person that I had never really hung out with or spent any quality time with, who, if you're at the top of the heap in American society, may be more common, Sure, but it's pretty shocking to be around. I think probably in the same way if somebody's around Donald Trump or they see that level of ego, the kind of self-involvement, how everything kind of curls back to them and it's all about them he's not novel in that way there's lots of people like this in in our society but jan was one of them in a big way and i had not i was sort of i've said this in in interviews before and i just want to explain a little bit what i mean which is that the how this inner tom wolf in me just sort of like clicked on when i was around Jan, yeah because i thought wow you just want to write about this because it's so preposterous in some ways it's so uh broad stroke and colorful the way he was you know just you can't believe somebody who and he had this incredible history He'd met every rock star in history and he made history with rolling stone and his ego matched that or what he thought he had achieved you know
1: and i think you can you get the impression from reading the book that if that was not his personality none of this would have ever would have happened There's absolutely dozens of historical moments just like where a reasonable person doesn't do something risky and egotistical and and for better and for worse. Like he, he makes fortunes and loses fortunes in order for you to want to do this book though. I get the impression that you had to find him fascinating. You had to find that this guy was interesting
0: enough to carry 500 pages, Right,
1: which is actually a kind of flattery in its
0: own right. I think. Well, a lot of people said that to me. They're like, how could he not like it? He's a narcissist. It's 500 pages. What wouldn't he like about it? It's all about him. Yeah. Yeah. I would have not thought that Jan winner, you had
1: 500 pages. Well, and,
0: and Yon some Yon people money. said he he doesn't justify it. You know, some critical people.
1: But um, I mean, I'll say uh, to this book's credit, I ate this book up like yeah. I, I can't remember a book. I think the last book I had this kind of relationship with was like Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Which is I don't know if that's a comparison you've gotten before. Yes.
0: Well, I I loved that book.
1: Also a book yeah. that's deeply unflattering yeah. to people who I actually hold in greater esteem yes. than Jan Wen or people who I really artistically idolized, but
0: totally compelling reading. You know, just like, yes. Um, and it was definitely one of the models, Yeah, you know, this sort of huge explosive thing, you know, like this grenade journalism thing that it was everything, you know, it's just chock full of wonderful stuff.
1: And it's a good setup similarly in that you have this story where tons of people's lives are crossing each other repeatedly over decades. Yeah. and, Side note, they're all famous people who it's kind of fun to read, like a few
0: anecdotes about. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was definitely in my world. And the other was the David Hadoux book, Positively 4th Street. Yep. Which I, what I loved about that book was he took a slice of history and he dove even more deeply into it and used it as a cultural set piece Mm -hmm. and basically describes a soap opera. Yeah. You know, between these four people. And um, what I loved about that was it, cued me into the fact that so much of history has to do with relationships. Mm -hmm. And at some point when I was overwhelmed with all of the kind of like um, researching this book, Jan's archive, this outrageously large archive he had, and all the people I was interviewing, it was like the proverbial fire hose, you know, trying to drink from the fire hose. But I realized the way to kind of like deal with this book was to take all of the big relationships that Jan had and describe them In kind of almost like a serialized TV show that you would get to see all of their different twists and turns with each other and then out the other end of it comes Rolling Stone magazine and all of these historic events and um, somebody wrote this after the fact and I've since really realized that this is what I was doing maybe unconsciously I wasn't aware of the definition of the phrase uh, or the word picaresque but I've since kind of looked into it and it's the sort of old, it's like Don Quixote. It's like the 15th, 16th yeah. century uh, forum in which there's this rogue character who's going around in a serialized stories, kind of outwitting everybody. Yeah. Having and,
1: misadventures. Yeah.
0: Having misadventures. And then one of the key things about the picaro, I learned, is that they never change. Mm. And the thing about Jan that was the most challenging to write about wasn't that he wasn't interesting enough. His history alone made him interesting. You know, you could just watch him pass through history and it would be interesting. But that he doesn't change. His character fundamentally remains the same. He seemed to me to still be the same person he had always been, kind of like a person who's maybe emotionally locked into like the moment his mother left him. You know, if you want to get like psych 101 about it, he yep. has this sort of like eternal Peter Pan yep. quality to him. Uh, but he also has the uh, Captain Hook side. Yep. And those are the the kind of two um, themes that were constantly uh, kind of wrestling with each other in the book.
1: Well, the idea of him being stuck in time is rich because he idolizes people like Hugh Hefner who literally are stuck in time. Yes. Like dressing like a like 1950s bachelor with a yes. robe and a pipe.
0: And by the way, the title, not of my book, but of the magazine. Is a rolling stone gathers no moss. He didn't gather any moss. He was to remain youthful. Yes. Right.
1: Um, And he also managed to create a canon under which the music popular at his own youthful peak would remain uh yes. considered the greatest music and considered right at least in his own estimation still sort of the hip music yeah. forever.
0: Yeah, it was sort of the tyranny of his youth. Yeah. Was always going to be, you know, there. And and for years it worked. For yeah. years it was a thing. And I get that. I mean, look, I'm the generation younger than the boomers, but I'm basically inherited their worldview. I inherited their Their music was my inheritance, and we all listened to it and were into it. Um, It was powerful. But partly you now realize it was powerful because they institutionalized it, and it was everywhere you went, right? And that he was a big part of that, and I wanted to capture that in the book.
1: When I look at the major characters in this book, I think Jane Wenner, Jan Wenner's wife, is almost as big a character as Jan Wenner. She's the yin to the yang. She's the 50% owner. She's kind of the only person who is there from the bottom to the top to the bottom. Uh, Also, Ralph Gleason, who is the co-founder jazz critic, but he died along the way of this journey. I'm interested in once you have these gazillion hours of interviews, and I want to talk about that process, but you start seeing, wow, like I can't tell this story without Jane Wenner. In fact, she is central to everything that happened here. Um, How you started thinking about charting her course over the book and about having a, a shadow, a foil for a main character
0: in a piece of biographical nonfiction like this? Sure. Well, the seeds of it were planted at the very, very outset because the thing that Jan was very paranoid about me writing about was his sex life. Yes. And, of course, he was closeted for most of the history of Rolling Stone, or a great chunk of it. I guess half of it, now that I think about it. And then there was this other kind of niggling fact there, which is that Jane Winner's family had put up most of the money to start the magazine. Yeah, And those two facts of him being gay and her having helped him you know, achieve financial power at the beginning seemed, I knew in between there, there had to be something fascinating. And as I got into it, I realized that everybody was mentioning Jane. I would interview people, and they'd be like, well, you know, the key to your story is Jane. I remember Boss Skaggs telling me that, and I was like, hmm, okay. And he was like, she never gets talked about, but she's the one that everybody liked. He's always saying, you know, everybody wanted to hang out with her. You know, Jan was flying around, but she was the one. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I realized nobody had ever interviewed her, and so I spent a year trying to get her. Mm -hmm. And as in that year in which I was interviewing tons of people and thinking more deeply about her and his marriage and getting him to speak more openly about his own sexuality and he talked about how he had been in love with this man in the summer of 1967 right before the magazine started and how that love affair lasted for four years. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That was before you got married. Yeah. And then it... I interviewed Jane's sister before I interviewed her. And she told me, yeah, she found out about this through intercepting some letters between the gay lover and Jan. And I said, well, when was that? And she described it. And it was before they got married. And then I, it just was like, whoa, there's something fascinating about this marriage. It's like one part denial, one part bargain. You yeah. know? There's something uh, both flexible and fraught about this marriage that I have to get. And as I once I finally got started interviewing her, she was a little reluctant, but then when she got her going, she was quite honest. I began to realize that this marriage was the core of the book. And, you know, you think, okay, that's a personal soap opera, and then there's Rolling Stone magazine, but they're inseparable. You've got the co-owners are in this relationship. And the magazine always was and is, maybe not now, but... Was for years an expression of Jan. Yeah, it was his world that he was framing, and he's the one that's deciding who's going to go on the cover, and he's the one who's deciding who's going to get to edit their own interview, <laughs> you know, and all of these things, and and obsessively curating it. And so, to the degree it was an expression of him, you need to know who he was. And to me, I realized uh, also that a magazine publisher by his very nature, has a serialized life. And in a way, the book had to be serialized. It had to be a serial set of different set pieces that take you in depth into a time and into the relationships that were prominent at that time. And so, uh, you know, at the beginning of, for instance, of the 1970s period uh, in the book, it's the first chapter, Temptation Eyes, he betrays John Lennon, and right around this time he's kind of uh, falling for hunter thompson and whereas john lennon had been the key figure almost the muse of rolling stone in the 1960s hunter thompson is about to become his muse for the 1970s and involved in that is both jane and jane's her own love she had a love affair too with this folk singer named sandy bull and i thought gosh the four of them it's like this interweaving soap opera between all of them and out at the end of it the equal sign at the end of this crazy thing is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas yeah and I just thought that's so fascinating you know it's so that's the story was it difficult
1: to balance that part of the story where you've got John Lennon and Hunter S. Thompson and love affairs with addicts and people dying and people yeah. sleeping in each other in office and then You know, the last one hundred pages of this book, spoiler alert, like it's like a lot of Mick Jagger on his twenty seventh cover of Rolling Stone, (laughs) right? Getting five stars for his solo album. Right. And like in some ways the romance is a
0: bit gone from the story. That's why it compresses rapidly. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were mad about that. Some of the employees of uh, Rolling Stone, you know, like. The the second half employees. Yeah, like, yeah. Hey, people who. Sort of got my name in there. Yeah. They were, we made their career in the 90s or whatever. And they're like. Yeah. Uh, because they came in. That's the thing about a place like Rolling Stone. People came in even at the later hours. Later years uh, with that kind of history and that romance as a kind of temptation, as a thing that they wanted to be a part of. They wanted to touch the hem of Hunter S. Thompson and they wanted to be involved in this. And that was a power that Jan had and he wielded over people, you know, because that was his power. He was the gatekeeper. Yeah. You know, a big theme of this book is the power that was afforded people who were gatekeepers at a time when gatekeepers were a meaningful thing. Yeah. You know, at a time when there was a limited amount of pages for things to be printed on. People like Hugh Hefner and Jan, if they had a big, great idea, they could create a circus tent and underneath that circus tent, they were the ringmaster. And now it's hard to imagine. I mean, maybe like the head of Facebook or something. It's like, it's just, it's not the same. Um, But
1: this book is an interesting discussion about how gatekeeping is a self-invented profession. Yes. There was no Rolling Stone that predated Rolling Stone. You kind of just set up shop and start saying, hey, you got to come through this gate. And at first people laugh at you. Yes. And then eventually you got enough people behind the gate that people start taking you seriously and you, you you, you build it, which is romantic in the era of Rolling Stone. And then by the time he's founding the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Is just kind of like crude, a little calloused, and just seems kind of cheap almost. It's lame. Have you been to the
0: Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> I have, and it's
1: kind of sad all these years of hearing about it in rolling stone magazine it's interesting the whole illusion yeah like the wizard of oz is everywhere in the 90s i read about people getting inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and you see like a still image of it and it's like wow yeah that you know he's in he made it and then you go there and it's just like a like kind of a crappy building in cleveland it's looks underfunded there's kind of there's the exhibitions, I would say, are kind of like what you'd expect at a like Hard Rock Cafe. Yes. It's just a few pieces of merch yes. in, a, in, a, in a glass case. I don't know. Like, once you turn on the lights in the bar, it's a little bit harder to see That's what it. was so romantic about the whole thing.
0: Well, and so this gets to a, the, maybe a, a larger point for me, which is that the challenge of this book at the outset. And the way that I began to philosophize how to write it was that I, at this late hour in the history of rock and roll, when it's basically over as a relevant cultural history, I would go to the bookstore, go to the music section, look at the stacks of rock books there, and realize, you know, this sort of like um, romantic, hagiographic view of the rock and roll age is just not going to cut it anymore, you know? And now on the other hand, I'm writing about Jan and Rolling Stone, which makes it easy not to romanticize in some ways because he was such a, um, kind of pirate. Yeah. You know, he was an entrepreneurial capitalist who had editorial talents, but the core of the book is about his ambition. Yep. And you get to watch the ambition drive the culture, drive the world that he's a part of, which is a bunch of other people who are ambitious. You know, drive it to the crest of the culture, uh, straight into the White House with Bill Clinton playing a saxophone solo, and then slowly, you know, decline as the internet kind of displaces it and disaggregates the whole thing. You know, that's what the, you know the title is about. So anyway, the is about ambition. I began to think the opportunity in this book was to stand outside that tent that Jan is the ringmaster of, which is not as easy as it sounds because. You know, I love rock and roll. Sure. I have friends who work at Rolling Stone, and I know it's a history. And at the time, before the UVA thing, because this whole thing began before the UVA disaster, uh, it was a credible American enterprise. But I realized I had to stand outside of it and get through the layers of kind of shellac That had gone on to this history and get to the down to the wood of it again. And that was going to make it look uh, more raw. And and by the way, Jan's archive allowed me to do that. Yeah. Because in there are letters that are written in 1972. And you see there's nothing romantic about these letters. They're business getting conducted. So when you look in his
1: archive, his archive is just. Like, physically, what, what am I seeing? What does a sure. person's archive look like? First
0: of all, it's stored in a special archival yeah. center called Iron Mountain, and it was literally in a mountain. And uh, so he had it so searchable and digitized in terms of you could see what was in the different boxes, and there were 500 boxes. So I would say Mick Jagger, right? And then, say, 12 boxes would come up and say these all have Mick Jagger materials in them. And
1: this is a process he's been paying for over time yes, to it's a his, management company someone that. someone has
0: to go in and type Mick Jagger Mick Jagger Mick Jagger he had it yeah. specifically curated yeah. by a professional curator and put into these different boxes and all organized and some of it's in plastic it's like he realizes the value I mean you yeah. got a telegram from John Lennon yeah it's, and the idea
1: is that when someone does this I'm, I'm sort of interested in people who are like historicizing themselves w- yeah. while still alive yeah so you're thinking Some time down the line, a university is going to take on the Rolling Stone Archive. It'll be the Rolling Stone Archive at UC Berkeley. Right. And he's just like making it really nice to try to get it it Unless he wants to sell it.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah. In fact, he was in talks with the New York Public Library at some point to sell it. I don't know what happened with it, but the fact of the archive itself, its depth, how he collected every last thing there were literature from couches he bought in like 1971 yeah. you know what i mean this sitting in there i mean there's everything was in there yeah there were stacks of memos that were like annie called while you were out call her back you yeah. know like stacks of these things from the 70s that, yeah. and i actually went through them you know i was just like well, just to see if there's anything interesting in here so you didn't like there was some of this unflattering material was just in there sitting there oh, yeah. waiting oh, like, oh sure like angry faxes
1: yeah, sure. between yes yeah,
0: so now yeah. it had been on the margins, I think it had been cleansed. Some of it had been screened, but there was plenty in there and plenty of just fascinating stuff. I mean, it showed like him courting advertisers in the record companies in the late 60s and just his sort of confidence and his arrogance and his occasionally his humor and just, but this sense of this kind of operator is yep. very present in this archive. You can yep. really see it and feel it. And uh, later, there was another person who worked at Rolling Stone who was a big figure in the 70s who was incredibly embittered <laughs> towards Jan. His name's Joe Armstrong, and he had also saved everything from that period. And he'd only been there for four or five years, yeah. but he saved it all, and he sent it all to me. And it was all the missing stuff from Jan's archive, and it had incredible stuff in it, just like real rich material that it all ended up in the book. And in just all altogether, it gave me this feeling of, These are young, arrogant people who are in control of the hippest thing imaginable. You know, this youth culture Bible with Hunter S. Thompson as like the hood ornament of your thing. I mean, people wanted this. And that gave Jan such power and confidence and you could just see it and feel it. But he was a workaholic too. He was like a, you know, hard driving guy. And to me, that was like, had to be the, metabolism in the engine of my book was to show that feeling of him kind of like clawing his way up the mountain. I think the book does that pretty effectively. And
1: I think the book's a little unusual in that generally when people don't have nice things to say about someone, they try to like lessen it or, you know, sugarcoat it a bit or say, you know, but we were all high then. Yeah, And that people who have gripes with him who are mostly famous seem very, very comfortable airing them. Yes. In fact, like the way you present it is like almost without hesitation. Like so you get a list of the people to talk to from this. Right. And this list comes from Jan Wenner of four well, no. potential people.
0: Well, I would go to Jan and say, yeah. Can you put me in touch with these people? You know, I yeah. want to talk to these people. Most of the people in here, the non famous, yeah, I would contact independently.
1: Yes, and that's the people who worked at Rolling Stone, yes. the people who who had business relationships. That's right,
0: and in ca- some cases, they would go to Jan and be like, okay, if I talk to him, and Jan yeah. would be like, have at it. Yeah. And then there were some people that are difficult to get through, like Mick Jagger, and yeah. he would say, you know, hey, can you talk to yeah. my biographer, which he loved saying that, by the yeah. way. He loved having a biographer. Yeah, yeah everybody had a gripe about rolling stone yeah from some point in their career because in the 70s it was a brutal magazine it was yeah. not like the magazine that you think of now no which is doing you know pretty much like um, celebratory profiles of yeah. famous people right in the 70s their critics were bitchy yeah their profilers were you know had daggers out you know yeah. it was and in many ways i was probably inspired a little bit from reading rolling stone 70s version because that was when it was the most vital yeah and the reason it was it's the most vital is because there was actually power in rock and roll at the time power in the record business there was money you know and fame and these guys were calling them to account the way one does to power as a journalist and that was why rolling stone was so exciting because you could just feel the the self-importance of the entire enterprise all the way around from the rock stars to the journalists and the journalists had such power that they were going to have fun with it you know and so I remember thinking this thought whether it's good or bad or fair or not but I'm going to treat Jan and his history as if it mattered and that it was powerful and I'm going to be truthful with it and be really straight and I'm not going to put more layers of shellac on this table you know I'm going to make it have the life that it had at the time. And what made that easy, again, was the archive. You'd go and you'd read these things and you'd say, I feel like I'm there. And, you know, there's a little instance in the book where I found a cassette tape where Jan's two people are gossiping about Jan in 1971 and he had this gay affair and it's these two people talking on the phone and it's all on his cassette, right? There's a fascinating history in there that uh, I've heard touched on at other points, which
1: is basically people in the Warholian New York City nightlife doing basically podcasts yes. after they go out where they gossip about people That's right. and talk shit and are doing a secret oral history of That's right.
0: downtown New York. That's what Danny Fields was doing.
1: Which ranges from banal to, I would say, um, in this case, sexual extortion.
0: Yes, exactly. You know, These were very ruthless gossips. Their attitude was sharky and yeah. sneaky and they were mean. Yeah, and they were mean. It was just, like, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is he's basically like one of the like first recorded like revenge porn victims. Yes. In, in this yes. situation. It, that's, there's an element to which that is true. And but when I was listening to these tapes, I it gave me such a palpable feeling of what it was to be in this world back then. Yeah. You know, not everybody was in the rock and roll world. Not everybody was cool and not everybody had access to all of this stuff. Uh, but the people who did were very unique kinds of people, you know, so this was their kind of like milieu and Jan was sort of trying to navigate through it. But I remember listening to those tapes and in the background you'd hear like a Jay Giles album playing and you would just get this feeling. You could hear the TV set on and you, I thought if I can make this book feel a little bit, if I can scrape off a little the feeling of what it's like to have been in that time, then I will be doing service to Jan's story. Yeah, not writing about it from 20,000 feet as like and then lo he went and started Rolling Stone magazine that was never going to be a book I wanted to write and so that the downside to that is he was going to hate it because it's going to be so raw and it's going to show this raw young arrogant ambitious guy cutting deals and doing what he did that tone
1: and that style of making it feel like you're there the only books I can think of that do that in this way are books that are literally oral histories. Like um, I'm thinking of uh, Capote and what's the one that's the, uh, she was like a Warhol scene person. Yeah, that's uh, the Edie Sedgwick. Edie Sedgwick. Story. Yeah. For you, was there ever a version of this book where you were just going to quote people? Like we were, whether you were just going to let people talk?
0: No, but I did play with the idea of doing interstitial oral history of just Jan talking Mm. to give him his say or whatever. Right. But he's a very kind of like mumbly and occasionally incoherent talker. Okay. And it just didn't feel right. And it would deflate the narrative momentum that I was trying to achieve. So I didn't.
1: I always wonder with something like Edie, like how massaged is
0: this prose to read this well? Yeah. Because it reads so well. I'm sure it was. I mean, Another thing you learn from that era is like, yes, people had journalistic principles, but (laughs) things were a little faster and looser back then. The
1: stakes maybe weren't quite as high.
0: They weren't as high and nobody was really going to call them on it. Yeah. You know, like who was going to say anything? And let's just say they did misquote you and massage your quote. What were you going to do? Write a letter to the editor and they could either publish it or not. I mean, you had no recourse really. The only recourse back then was I'm never talking to them again, which happened. Yeah. You know, with John Lennon. Or it happened in 10 years, took 10 years off, you know. Same with um, Joni Mitchell and people who were just infuriated by things that were in there, that that was your only recourse is just don't talk to them. Although, as you learn, Jan was so powerful that, you know, you were kind of losing out to not get that coverage if you had a new record coming out or whatever. So it's a, you know, it was a different world. Tell me about
1: three types of interviews you did for this book Mm -hmm. the Jan Wenner interviews, the. Very famous person Paul McCartney kind of interviews sure. and the people who were there in Rolling Stone maybe aren't famous but were first person eyewitnesses to a yes. lot of the stuff in this book. How did each one of those interview types
0: work out? Well, I would say, you know, in terms of um, the quality of, of the information, yeah. it basically reversed those. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, one thing if uh, I would direct you to, and other people who decide to read my book, is if they go to the acknowledgements page, there's a whole paragraph where I say, I would like to thank this list of women. Yeah. Because. It turns out in this like crazy male-centric rock and roll age of the 60s and 70s there were all these women around <laughs> right yeah. but they didn't have the power they fact, didn't have the job checking department or anything yeah, yeah or if if yeah. that and but they were paying attention and they had such great observation such psychological insight into Jan or like I'll tell you who Jan was Jan was this Jan yeah. was this narcissistic bully you know who was a genius but was hard to handle you mm-hmm. know and they would just tell it to you straight, whereas a lot of the male... Not, this was not every male interview, obviously, but many of them were like, let me tell you a story, and I happen to be the protagonist of it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of yeah. that. Or, they, you know, they had a... You know, they were grinding an axe. But So Jan could be really interesting as an interview if you boxed him in and got him there. You know what I mean? His top-line messaging in an interview was to get past that. He had to get past it because it was such, like... A non-specific, oh, he was great, you know, and that would be like the entire description of like Joe House or something, you know, and so uh, you know you would have to like, well, tell me about the time about he did this. Do you remember this? And you'd have to kind of force him to remember some things that he didn't really want to remember. Yeah, and then he'd be like, oh yeah, I guess that did happen, you know, like he had to be backed into stuff. I felt often. Occasionally, he'd remember a great anecdote, like the time that he and Truman Capote like broke down in a car on the way back from a gay bar and had to walk through the desert to get to a gas station. I thought that was an amazing. <laughs> that was great. I loved that. Now, then the rock star thing was a mixed bag. I mean, some people are giving you very sort of canned stuff, and your challenge is to get past the canned stories. But I was surprised, and many people were, I guess, reading my book, was that a lot of them were willing to air kind of conflicts and different kind of ups and downs that they'd had with John. And Paul McCartney as you mentioned was definitely the most shocking to me because I I went to England to meet him to this place in the country that he had a studio out there. And I uh, expected nothing. I mean I was like I'll meet him. He'll say a bunch of like kind of blowy things that maybe I'll use and maybe not and we'll just see how it goes. How long do you get? Like, do you say like, if I come there, do I get he a day just do I said get come. an hour? Okay, sorry. and I ended up getting more than I could ever have dreamed. Yeah, I mean, I was there for like two hours and probably more. And an hour of it was interview, and an hour was like hanging out with him as he like played in musical instruments in his studio and showed me Beatles memorabilia. You know, just crazy things that were insane for me. But like some of these other rock stars, he'd had so many ups and downs with Rolling Stone that, and he didn't forget them you know, they stuck in his mind as little barbs that he still had resentments about. And the reason Paul McCartney's was the most interesting is because the history of the Beatles was wrapped up in Rolling Stone. You know, I mean, the breakup of the Beatles especially was well covered by Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone was on its face, a partisan for John Lennon's side of the story. Yeah, And it always sort of gave the backhand to Paul. And okay, that was 1970, 71, this breakup is happening, but It went on for years and years and years and years. And when Lennon died, he became this icon. And Rolling Stone had a lot to do with turning him into one. You know, as we now know, Jan Winter and Yoko Ono became very good social friends. And that was a kind of like... A friendship of pragmatism there on some level. The first of many cases of collusion. Collusion uh, that yes. uh, uh, influenced
1: uh, editorial coverage and our perception of uh, absolutely.
0: History. And she said as much. You know, she yeah. said that the issue marking his um, assassination, you know, helped turn him into an icon. Yeah. And uh, so conversely, of course, Paul McCartney resented that Rolling Stone had made him into this icon. Yeah. And resented that he was constantly cast as the second banana, yep. even extending into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, in which he gets betrayed by Jan once again, as, as is described in the book. Or at least he claims to, you know, I don't like decide as a judge. Allegedly. He, allegedly. So, so the you know, what you start to realize, and I think that was shocking to me and wonderful for my book, was that, you know, you think that these things happened... In 1971, and that six months later they got over it and they moved on with their life. No way. They just never forget these people. They just no. they have huge legacies that they're burnishing at this stage in their life. They no longer care. You know, they don't give a shit. They're gonna tell you what they think. They're all rich. There's they're no rich as hell, and all they have left are these grievances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, sure, I'll tell you about my grievances, and with, and when it comes to Jan, I don't even think twice about it. You now, know?
1: did Jan Wenner not think that Paul? McCartney was just going to air him out the minute he got a chance. That's the
0: part that I don't get. I think that Jan just figured that they would all continue to kiss the ring on some level or that they would defer to him thinking that they wanted future coverage in Rolling Stone and that the equilibrium... Too close to death. It's... At a certain point, yes. cut co- like, how That's much coverage are you going to get? That's Does what it was. Paul it... McCartney have
1: one more album in him? Tops?
0: No. He doesn't need a Rolling Stone review. No, no, he didn't. In fact, he just gave his big profile to GQ, I saw. Um, so for me, it was like this grab bag of wonderful stories suddenly. And then you also realize that Jan had a kind of cycle that he went through with different people. He would be their friend, give them wonderful coverage, bring them into his fold. And when he no longer needed them or decided he, there was another bright, shiny object over here that I'm going to pursue. He would sometimes betray or backhand, or at least it was perceived as a betrayal or backhand. The person would feel like Jan dropped them or suddenly put the hatchet in them, you know, and as Art Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel says in here, you know, when Jan puts his arm around your back, you got to look and see if there's a dagger there. And uh, the best sources for me were people who had some perspective, you know, who looked back on it and didn't just glorify it, but they looked at it and they were like, you know, we thought we were doing X and it turned out we were doing Y and then the world has turned into Z, you know, and... There was some lament, you know, and I felt like the, the, some of the lament that people expressed to me, I, I would trust those people as sources because I felt like they weren't trying to present me with their beautiful, shiny anecdotes that they'd been buffing over the years. You know, some of those are fun, but there was a one woman in LA, this woman named Joey Townsend, whose name comes up occasionally in the book. She's nobody would have ever heard of. She was sort of like a jet setting, rich hippie. And her father was, had been the head of um, Ava's Car in the 60s. And so she had this beautiful place in Bel Air. She still lived in it. And she uh, had dated all these famous people in the 70s. And I remember her just having this really philosophical outlook on what had happened in those years and what had become of the world. There was something really uh, poetic about her. And when you meet somebody like that and they're trying to say, hey, listen, I know it all sounds romantic to you, all these things, but a lot of it was destructive and look where it led us in the world. You know, we, climate change and this terrible governance and all the dreams we had did not come true. And in fact, we're going the opposite way. So what the hell, you know? (laughs) And I started to think, I guess I need to be able to have that prism. I need to be able to use that filter to look at this story a little bit because- You know, we've read enough books glorifying the 60s and the 70s to know that it was glorious, right? But as I was finishing the book, Donald Trump was being elected. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, and I wrote this line at the end of the book, you know, it's the story that begins with John Lennon on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1967 and ends with Donald Trump in the White House. And in many ways, the book takes you there. I wanted it to, you know, takes you through the culture as it metastasizes into what it is now. And it had a lot to do with a sense of, uh, as I put it in the book, and people can agree or disagree, but the age of narcissism, this sort of like worship of celebrity. And Jan was very much into celebrity, just, and worshipful of it, and glorifying it, and turning it into a thing. And eventually celebrity displaces a lot of the ideas that they originally started with, in my estimation. And that was a narrative thread that i began to pull in the book did you read every rolling stone no i read a lot of them yeah as i got into the 80s i started to uh, skim and and there were some actually you know rolling stone looked terrible in the 80s but there was some great material in there you know great reporting one thing decision i made was that it couldn't be a strictly a story of what was in the magazine and it couldn't be strictly a story of journalism for one, I didn't want to read, and I don't think lots of people want to read about just a lot of journalistic daring do stories yep and then the other problem with is I'd bring it up to Jan and he wouldn't remember any of them. He was not himself super fascinated with all of the big you know marquee journalistic pyrotechnics of the magazine over the last 20 or 30 years.
1: It seems like the time for that book would have been like the late 90s, early 00s when there was sort of peak Hunter Thompson fever. And I don't know how Hunter Thompson is regarded now, but I would imagine like a high
0: school students have a different relationship with him than they did when I was in high school. I I would think so. And I read him very differently from this kind of position in history. I've loved reading Fear and Loathing again, and it was funny to me, but then I think it was shocking to me to learn studying the history that his career was so short yeah. that his years of productivity were minuscule compared to the years and years in which he lived, dined out on his legacy yeah. and became kind of a caricature of himself really quickly. Yeah. And I was like, that's more pathetic than it is, uh, great. And, and I knew that was going to piss some people off or, you know, that find him to be a beloved figure, but I found him kind of gross and pathetic towards the end of his life, and I was not going to... I needed to write that, you know. Especially his end was horrible. It's strange because um,
1: Johnny Depp, when I was in high school, was playing Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you read that profile of Johnny Depp that was... uh, Stephen Roderick, great great piece. ...recently Mm -hmm. has become not a, a hunter s thompson figure but a, a similar figure in, in deep decline living in isolation
0: in a kind of a reality distortion field totally and stating explicitly that he wants to be like hunter s thompson in that yes. way. yes and um what was the, the interesting about that story the kind of meta aspect of the story is that i found all kinds of letters between jan and johnny depp over the last 15 20 years in which depp was calling him uncle Jano, and they were you know, ostensibly buddies. Yeah. And I'm sure Jan got him the access or that the access came because Johnny Depp went to Jan and said, my understanding of that story was that Johnny Depp actually asked for that story. That's right. And he went to Jan and Jan was ostensibly his friend and they had, you know, done Hunter S Thompson's funeral together and they had been big buddies and the letters they wrote to each other were super chummy and you're my buddy and chum chum. And also by the way, Johnny is uh, the godparent of one of Jan's kids so there's just nowhere i can go that does not overlap this story i could just
1: yell out a random celebrity and you could get me there within five seconds right well
0: i mean but this goes back to the thing i kept coming across and that i wrote about you know there's two sides to the jan winter story which is that there's the seduction and there's the betrayal and it happens again and again and it's partly just to go back to journalism as a craft you know the dark side of journalism is this is what's always happening (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) yeah and uh, but he was doing it from the top echelons of our culture yeah. and so whereas i might have an enemy and you know this uh, mutual fund investor i yeah. wrote about you know 15 years ago his enemies are huge figures in the culture because he would have written about them in a way they didn't like and they would have blamed him
1: uh thank you so much for this interview
0: you're very welcome. I appreciate you having me. It's fun to talk about this. And uh, the book is now in paperback. Yes, everywhere. sticky fingers. I li-
1: I, I I'm going to actually say I think I kind of like the un-paperback cover better than the hardcover.
0: You know, uh, you're, you're not the first to say that. In bookstores now. Yes, in bookstores now. Go pick it up. Thanks, Joe. Thank you.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to Longform. Thank you to Joe Hagen. Thank you to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Janelle Piper for editing this episode. Thanks to Tyler McCloskey for being our intern. And thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. You can always get in touch, podcast at longform.org. See you next week.
0: Hey, before
1: we go, I just want to thank Skagen again. They make some great, minimalist, Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. They sent us a smartwatch, which is just excellent. It doesn't even look like a smartwatch, which is the best part about it. It just looks like a beautiful watch that you'd want to wear now or 10 years from now. You can find them at skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. You will get a special discount if you sign up for the email list there. Thank you, Scoggin. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.